Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by my fellow co-founder, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, back live May 25th, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for joining me. Hey, Reed. Glad to be back. And also joining me is Lincoln Project Senior Advisor and author of It Was All a Lie, Stuart Stevens. Stu, thanks for joining today. Thanks for asking me to the party, Reed. And rounding out the panel is Executive Director of the Lincoln Project, Fred Wellman. Fred, welcome back. Great to be back. So today we're going to talk about an open letter from 124 retired generals pushing the big lie, as well as a group that's threatening to leave the Republican Party if changes aren't made. But first, it is official. Congresswoman Liz Cheney has been ousted from her leadership role as the House Republican Conference Chair. Yesterday, Republican House members met behind closed doors and voted by way of voice vote to remove Liz Cheney from her leadership position. The night before, Cheney gave an impassioned, defiant speech on the House floor, warning her party of the continual damage the big lie inflicts on our nation's democracy. Here's what she had to say. Today, we face a threat America has never seen before. A former president who provoked a violent attack on this Capitol in an effort to steal the election has resumed his aggressive effort to convince Americans that the election was stolen from him. He risks inciting further violence. Millions of Americans have been misled by the former president. They have heard only his words, but not the truth as he continues to undermine our democratic process, sowing seeds of doubt about whether democracy really works at all. I am a conservative Republican, and the most conservative of conservative principles is reverence for the rule of law. The Electoral College has voted. More than 60 state and federal courts, including multiple judges the former president appointed, have rejected his claims. The Trump Department of Justice investigated the former president's claims of widespread fraud and found no evidence to support them. The election is over. That is the rule of law. That is our constitutional process. Those who refuse to accept the rulings of our courts are at war with the Constitution. Our duty is clear. Every one of us who has sworn the oath must act to prevent the unraveling of our democracy. This is not about policy. This is not about partisanship. This is about our duty as Americans. Remaining silent and ignoring the lie emboldens the liar. I will not participate in that. I will not sit back and watch in silence while others lead our party down a path that abandons the rule of law and joins the former president's crusade to undermine our democracy. So Rick, 
a fairly short speech, about six and a half minutes. She reiterated her position, which she's going to hold strong to. But she used, you know, some pretty strong language in there for a member of Congress. She invoked the word war, talked about standing up for democracy. This does not look like a fight she looks to be given up anytime soon. I think one of the things here that people do not understand about who Liz Cheney is, she is the daughter of Dick Cheney, a man we all know who has imbued a certain sort of stoic approach to these things where the bigger question, the bigger mission is what's important. She doesn't care about who likes her in Washington. She doesn't care if she's you know, invited to what parties or not. She cares about the country. And people can disagree with her politics, but what you saw there was a person who could have taken the easy way out, who could have done the talk, not action, who could have said, oh, I strongly object to what the president said and then done nothing. Her own caucus is full of them, including people that claim they were going to support her. And so it's important to remember that principle in Washington is in short supply, and it's a rare thing to see. And she showed it in a way that is remarkable. And so, Stuart, as we understand it, the conference took a vote by a voice vote. They did not force people to put their names down on a piece of paper, on a roster, in a ballot box in order to remove Cheney from her position, which to me just reinforces the cowardice of the whole ballgame. I mean, it really isn't complicated here. They resent her because they reveal their own cowardness. It's that simple. There is a comforting sort of contagiousness to cowardness. And you never feel like a coward if you're surrounded by cowards until someone who's not a coward shows up. And it's disturbing. It makes life harder. You get asked awkward questions by others, and certain people will look in the mirror and ask themselves awkward questions. What we've been saying in the Lincoln Project for some time is the dividing line in politics is not policy-based anymore. You know, I'll be damned if the Republican Party doesn't seem to wake up every day determined to prove us right. So here you have Liz Cheney, who is more conservative than Elise Stefanik by a whole bunch, and they're going to go Elise Stefanik and replace the more conservative with the less conservative because she won't take the Fuhrer oath. I mean, what we're watching here, I mean, Liz is right. We haven't seen anything like this in American politics on multiple levels, but it is a complete collapse of any moral authority of a party and where a major American political party has become an anti-democratic threat. And this hasn't happened at least since 1860. So, Rick, speaking of Elise Stefanik, they did not take a vote to replace Liz Cheney. Elise Stefanik has been the early frontrunner to replace her. But now we saw that, you know, there's a guy named Chip Roy from Texas who, among other things, used to be Ted Cruz's chief of staff, if that gives you a sense of his moral compass. And there will soon be others. In fact, Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted yesterday after the vote that they should not rush to make a decision about who comes next. So my question is, is Elise Stefanik's best day yesterday at this point? I think it might well have been yesterday, because as of now, once you start acting as if this is a purity check, which is now what it has become, then Elise Stefanik's ideological bona fides will be questioned. And she will be ground down slowly but surely as people say, well, is she good enough? Did she love Trump enough? Was she passionate enough? And we all know in these dear leader situations, it's never enough. The commitment level is never high enough. There's never a pinnacle that you can dream of that they say, you know, you haven't yet met the ideological check that we require you to meet to stay in the club. 
And I will say this though, Reed, there's one thing today that is a quite a remarkable development. And I think he's going to get in a little bit of trouble with Donald. Kevin McCarthy at the White House said that Donald Trump was not the legitimate president that Joe Biden was. Yeah, well, actually, Rick, we have that piece of tape. So just to set up, as Rick said, yesterday, Kevin McCarthy went to the White House to meet with President Biden, Vice President Harris and McConnell, Speaker Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. He went out to the stand up outside the West Wing and he said this. Well, first of all, the conference will decide, but I don't think anybody is questioning the legitimacy of the presidential election. I think that is all over with. We're sitting here with the president today. Um, so from that point of view, I don't think that's a problem. Somebody's in trouble. You know, look, not that Kevin McCarthy had a ton of credibility to begin with, but anyone who thinks Kevin McCarthy is a serious person after that experience just now, where he literally fired Liz Cheney from the job as conference chairman and allowed himself to get rolled over because she wasn't sufficiently dedicated to the lie that Donald Trump is the real president and Joe Biden's an imposter. He just went out and said out loud in English that Joe Biden's the president. And so I got to tell you, by the time he got to his car, he had to be thinking, oh, fuck. I hope Donald wasn't watching. Donald was watching, dude. Trust me. He bought himself a first class train ticket to Bedminster just to make sure he could get there before sundown. Well, he'll probably stop at Dollar Tree and pick up like a silver bowl and give uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's clearly, right? that's the way it back goes hard. Maybe a little statuette. <laughs> I mean, Fred, you've been in politics and around Washington long enough. Even what we're seeing here is a pretty, I would say, Hall of Fame level of cravenness from a lot of these folks. And that whole day was like that. The ability for McCarthy to get up and say, nobody's saying that, when that's the entire reason his number three was thrown out. And then at the same time he was doing that, if you guys follow it, which I obsessively follow, uh, the former defense secretary, Chris Miller, was appearing in a hearing about January 6th, and he's rewritten his story like six times. And suddenly he did his best, and it was great, and Trump had nothing to do with it. Now, as these instigators who had planned it before, it's just this constant rewriting history. I mean, we've all gotten used to gaslighting here at the Lincoln Project. I mean, gaslighting is the modus operandi for the last five years. But I think we've gone through a looking glass of some sort where I've never seen such craven, empty, and immoral characters in our body politic in my lifetime. But the happiness with which these men and women appear on camera and just blatantly lie. I mean, our rapid response team just simply spends all day caking clips of when they said one thing and then putting against when they didn't say something else. It's just the insanity. I mean, it makes our job easy, so I appreciate that at least, but the ridiculousness is beyond compare. To Fred's point, you know, American politics, all politics is filled with people who flip-flop. But, you know, did Donald Trump take that to a new level? Did he cross some boundary by which you could literally say anything and get away with it? Because how is it that McCarthy can say, you know, on a Monday, she doesn't speak for the conference. She can't carry the message, the implicit message being Donald Trump really won. And then on Wednesday from, you know, the West Wing from the grounds of the White House, say the exact opposite. Do you think they were in the Oval Office and just like, Kevin, get your shit together? Kevin McCarthy is the least complicated guy that you've ever known. And I think that he went in the White House and he saw the president of the United States. He was in this thing called the Oval Office. You know, they're standing around and, you know, they want to feel that you know, he's going to go out there and say that the president of the United States is the president of the United States. Now, he'll change. I mean, I think you could hold your breath until he's going to reverse on this. It's just an absurdity. There is no meaning of truth, which is really what this is all about. And this is what Liz is saying. There has to be some truth here. Donald Trump lost the presidential race. That's the truth. 
but you can't admit truth. So this is just an extension of the war against science, the war against the idea that higher education is good. And, you know, when Bobby Jindal went out and said, let's don't be the stupid party, it was too late. It requires you, as do cults, as do totalitarian governments, to put aside your knowledge of the world as you experience it, as it is, as you know it to be true, for an alternative reality. And really, that's what they're attempting to create here. They're attempting to create an alternative reality of America, that America is not the country that it is and is increasingly changing to be. It is the country of some sort of mythical past where everyone knew their place and people like Kevin McCarthy were at the top of the order and it was unquestioned. And the efforts to change the voting rights laws are an attempt to change the truth of what the country is. So this is the burden that being a Republican today demands of you. And what's shocking is just how many people are very comfortable with going along with it. So I'd be interested if someone did a cartoon with those six people sitting in the Oval Office, what would the thought bubbles of Biden, Harris, Pelosi, Schumer, and McConnell be when they were all looking at Kevin? These are very smart, savvy politicians. They've been very successful in their chosen districts, in their chosen fields, in their chosen expertise. And then you got Kevin. And it's like, Kevin, someone invited Kevin. Why is Kevin here? He should be at the kids' table. He shouldn't be sitting in the Oval Office. But let me ask you this, because, you know, Stuart, about the truth piece, earlier this week, Senate Bill 1, the For the People Act, a voting rights bill, was being debated in the Senate Rules Committee. There were a couple of pieces of interest that came out of there. One is that Mitch McConnell had the gall to say that the Democrats were trying to make it harder for people to vote by changing the rules. And... Ted Cruz actually said that what he thought that SB1 was, was Jim Crow 2.0. And so I think we've seen this, and we've seen this throughout history. It appears that every time the Republicans know that someone has gotten to them, right, with a message that is likely to push past the normal American sort of ADD into something that could be very damaging for them, they take it as their own and they regurgitate it. I mean, I guess this is not new, right? This is what proto-authoritarians have been doing for a long, long time. Make your biggest weakness your opponent's biggest weakness. Well, look, you know, this is what the Soviet Union did for decades of propaganda about the United States. The United States was the place in which people were enslaved. The United States was the place where there was no freedom. The United States was a place where people were starving and that these images you saw were all fake. This is just how propaganda works. You accuse your opponent of that which you are yourself. Again, what's happening here in the United States is not novel. It's just novel that it's happening in the United States at this level. Fascist totalitarians don't take power by saying, we are totalitarians, join us. They make it where there is something out there that you're going to fear more than them, that they are safe. They try to be reassuring. And what is the Republican Party for? What does it stand for? So how many infrastructure weeks were there under Trump? We never got an infrastructure bill. All of them. Yeah. I mean, I could buy Apple if I had $100 for every ad I'd made saying that Republicans were going to come up with an alternative to Obamacare. (laughs) And we never did. Well, but that goes back to the idea you would have to sit down. You'd have to think about 
an infinitely complicated policy prescription and do something about it when you had just spent the previous weeks, months, and years saying anything that has anything to do with the government and healthcare is socialism. Oh, but by the way, the, the alternative is that your life is now run by insurance companies, not exactly the greatest people in the world. Well, and the fact that, as that infamous sign said at the Tea Party rally, take your government hands off my Medicare. <laughs> There's just these contradictions inside the Republican Party. And, you know, you see someone like Senator Kenny of Louisiana still going out and saying these same things, that the difference between Democrats is that they believe in government and Republicans believe in people. Except Louisiana gets over 40% of its state budget from the federal government. I mean, this is the thing that I finally forced myself to come to grips with. Like, I spent all these years, as did we all, pointing out flaws to the Democratic Party, of which I think a lot of them had truth to them. But we never came to grips with the alternative that Republicans were offering. I look at the Democratic Party, and I believe it's deeply flawed, but I have to say it is, I think, much more um, con in touch with a reason that a political party would exist in the first place. People can tell you proactive reasons that they belong to the Democratic Party, and they make sense. Republicans now think, why do you belong to the Republican Party? Well, I'm against Democrats. Well, what does that really mean? I mean, there is no platform for the Republican Party, literally now. They literally told us the platform is whatever Trump wakes up with that morning. That's all he cares about. They didn't care that Trump completely walked away from everything. And, and look, we've all been through enough conventions and Stuart more than any of us, but I will tell you the worst freaking thing at a political convention is the platform committee. They're the worst people in the world, but there's a difference between that irritation and having a party that believes in victory as the only thing and, you know, owning the libs and trolling the media. That's the substance of the GOP today. Let me ask you something, Fred. Having fought in two wars, what do you make of this? That's horrifying. And for me, you know, a good part of my second, you know, Iraq experience in 2003, I ended up working civil affairs in the region around Q West Air Base in Nineveh province. Little known fact, although I flew helicopters, I was actually delivering food and water and building schools. The story I tell often, when we first started having the bombs going off in our region, I asked my Sheikh, the doctor, he was a doctor too, who I worked with, I said, I just don't understand it, doctor. People are driving by these cars, it's broad daylight. You know, why are they not reporting? Why are they not calling the authorities and say, hey, look, we saw a bomb going in. And he said, you must understand something, Major Wellman. For 35 years, we lived in a country where you didn't see things. You did not see the black SUV pulling up to the house next door and the family disappearing. You did not see, you know, the government killing people in the streets. Because if you saw things, then you got killed. And it's obviously stuck with me. I, I remember the conversation. I can see Dr. Muhammad's face. And by the way, Dr. Muhammad would later be assassinated by ISIL right in the clinic I built for him, ironically. But I know that I know those words. And they looked at America with such envy for the peaceful government, the peace of our nation, the peaceful transfer of power, the transfer of power, period. What the impression I walked away with from Iraq and, and then my, especially my, my next two tours working directly with Iraqis is, you're right, a horror, a horror for my own nation that violence is now a part of our conversation. Lying and denial of the democratic processes that have made us great are a modus operandi for a major American political party. You can see the path. When you're a guy like me, you see where it goes. And why did I join the Lincoln Project when I got the call to come over? That's it. 
I saw the path. I saw the path to authoritarianism. I saw the results of that. It is not good. And, and what's fascinating to me and what's gratifying to me is just how many of my fellow veterans see it too. You know, you, you, there's this common belief that all of us are right wing or conservative. It's so far from the truth today. So many of my peers have said, this is not the country I want to be a part of. So yeah, it, you point out a good point, Stuart. I, I've seen the darkest side of what can happen when authoritarianism becomes the government and what, re, what that results in. And I, I never want to stand in this United States and have that conversation. Well, let's talk about the Republican Party itself and what's going on inside it. The media has apparently just woken up in the last week to the idea that Donald Trump is in charge of the Republican Party, although he never wasn't. But, you know, we've seen Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and a few other people in the House, people like Mitt Romney, you know, really taking a stand against this stuff. Then you see the people like Mitch McConnell and Susan Collins, who what I call are just the, you know, can't you just get over it caucus? They want to focus on, quote unquote, policy. You know, McConnell wants to make sure that Joe Biden can't be successful. They don't want to talk about Trump, as we've talked about before. If you call him the former guy like Voldemort, he won't appear because, you know, he's not on social media anymore. And if he's not on social media because so many reporters are on social media, then he doesn't exist. You know, it's like a little kid covering their eyes and going, you can't see me. You can't see me. But today, as of this taping, a group of about 100 Republicans, including some former elected officials, have laid down an ultimatum to the GOP. Make changes or we're going to form a third party. And as of this taping, they haven't really put out the full analysis of what it is they're going to do. But here's the preamble of their statement. It says, quote, when in our democratic republic forces of conspiracy, division and despotism arise, it is the patriotic duty of citizens to act collectively in defense of liberty and justice. All right. I think that all makes perfect sense. According to Reuters, expected signatories of the statement include former Governor Tom Ridge of Pennsylvania and Christy Todd Whitman of New Jersey, former Transportation Secretary Mary Peters, and former Congresspeople Charlie Dent of Pennsylvania, Barbara Comstock of Virginia, Reed Ribble of Wisconsin, and Mickey Edwards of Oklahoma. So, you know, guys, if you'll indulge me here for a second, there's a couple things on this front. One is that if anybody wants to get in the fight for democracy, I think that's a good thing. And we should welcome all comers to that. Before we started the Lincoln Project, I spent three years in the independent and reform space, as I think I've noted before. And it was with the highest of hopes and expectations and the most realistic of disappointments when reality was faced. And, you know, I've sat with many of the people that are likely to come out and do this today. I've sat around many tables and many rooms, and I wish them nothing but the best. But here is my biggest concern, is they didn't make a choice. They said, if you don't do what we want you to do, we're going to leave the party. The predicate, of course, is that the Republican Party, Trump and the rest of the acolytes, are never going to do what these people want. So... Why go through the kabuki of, you know, this idea, well, we'll really leave, we'll start a new party. Now, there's a lot of these people I've also spoken with and I've worked with some on starting a new party, and that is not an easy lift. That is not an easy lift. Fifty different sets of rules. In Louisiana, you fill out a piece of paper. In the state of Vermont, you have to have 14 county conventions of at least three people who all agree that you should form a new party. In California, you have to spend somewhere between six and eight, maybe $10 million collecting signatures to get on the ballot there. So I'm glad that they've decided to take this step. But it seems a little bit like the Vichy French saying, hey, Germans, you better get out of Paris. And if you don't, 
we're going to be really upset. And the Germans are sort of like, okay. I mean, am I being too cynical? I mean, Rick, what do you think? No. First off, a lot of the folks involved in this are friends of ours. And I consider many of them to be good friends. But there is a reality here that if you say we're going to leave the party, it's like telling a kid, if you don't stop knocking over things, you're not going to go to Disney World. Then you take them to Disney World. And they learn a behavior of contempt if you do that. And I think what's going to happen here is they're going to put out a very thoughtful statement. They're going to put out a very thoughtful set of principles. And those things are going to work perfectly right after we invent a time machine to go back to 1984, because the party of today hates them. The party of today will look at every one of them and say, okay, get the fuck out. I don't care. I'm not dismissing them. I'm just thinking that we've just been through such a different experience in the last year and a half. I think we're just a year and a half ahead of them. They're going to learn that there is no there there anymore. There is no Republican party anymore. You can't tell a person who wants to go and listen to Donald Trump tell him to invade the Capitol, charge up the steps and beat in windows and invade the building and crap on the floor. You can't tell that person, hey, we're going to now, instead of that, talk about marginal tax policy. It's not going to work. Sorry. Well, Stuart, Schmidt makes the hypothesis that goes along with what Rick says, but takes it to one step further, which is they may be hated by the rest of the party, but the party can't win without them. Now, of course, when we talk about them, I'm talking about 100 people. And we should also indicate a lot of these folks have not been elected officials for a very long time. Most of them still live somewhere, if not the Beltway, then the Acela Corridor. So I'd be interested. I mean, Stuart, if these folks come out and say this, is there a realistic electoral effect that other Republicans around the country will feel by this action? I think the answer is in execution. Say Tom Ridge was on the ballot as a favorite son in Pennsylvania in the 2024 presidential race. There's an interesting poli-sci question here. Would that draw from Republicans who would have voted for you know, Donald Trump or whatever version of Trump is running in 2024, or will that take votes from Biden? And you won't know that until you actually look at the numbers. But I think that there is a role to play here to deny Republicans office. But that is really the only path for these. There's only a couple of states where independents win. I mean, Maine is one, Vermont is one. I don't know the roadmap. I just know that you have to defeat these Republicans. And I think only through defeat will they come to grips with this. You know, to your point, Stu, about the unconventionality, as much as I appreciate what these folks are doing, it still misses the point. You can't be anti-Trump and be pro-Republican. It doesn't work anymore. The party, as any of us knew it, as any of us worked within it, is gone. The idea that somehow you're going to excise 84% of the party and be successful electorally anywhere but a few moderately red districts is ridiculous. What about money, guys? I mean, Margie Taylor Green raked in $2 million last quarter, and she's a freaking nut job. I mean, I think if you sit back, too, is how many of these guys, are like Kevin McCarthy, too, are saying, well, obviously there's money to be had. And I can't imagine a scenario where these guys are able to raise the kind of money that the MAGA crowd throws at these nut jobs and then allows them the power to give it to other candidates. I mean, in the end, it does come down to that, too, doesn't it? Well, the thing that drives all small dollar donation, including small contributions to us, and thank you to so many folks who've done that, is passion. 
and I think that's another fundamental issue for me on this is this whole idea of the rationals versus the radicals. I mean, rationality is great, but it doesn't get a lot of people out of bed in the morning to go work on a political campaign or storm the barricades. No rational human being says, I'm in Belarus and the guy who should have lost didn't lose. I'm going to go to the square. That's not what rationality is. It's not irrationality either, but it is emotional. And I think to me, that's one of the most important things is, again, I've been part of a group where we argued for days and weeks over policy positions that no one ever cared about. You know, well, if we do this, then these people won't like us. And if we do that, then those people won't like us. Without ever understanding, like, if you got 40% of the country for you in a three-way race, you win. And so it's just one of those things where ultimately, you know, there's probably some very eloquent words that they'll release today, but it was ultimately the avoidance of making a decision. I think that's what this is. They could have decided to make a decision and they instead put out some ultimatum that no one will take seriously. If their goal is to reform the GOP, then the strategic imperative is to destroy Trumpism, not to say, we'll take our ball and go home if you don't play. That's not what the current Republican Party is or wants to be. They don't want to be told, hey, you're on the wrong path. You're going home on a first date with authoritarianism. This is a bad play. Don't do this. They don't want to be told that. In fact, they want to be told, this is the most awesome party we've ever been to. We're having fun now. And you know what? They are having fun. They're having a fucking ball. They love this. They don't have to be responsible for anything. They can be as cruel and as aggressive as they want in every domain. And, you know, their opinion is that the party was weak before Trump and is strong now. But in their minds, it became strong by abandoning everything. Well, this group of 100 plus, you know, we can only wish them the best, welcome them to the fight, hope that they will take the next decisive steps. Again, from my perspective, personally, anyway, is that the party is irredeemable. You know, you can say all you want about fighting from within it. They lost all the major federal offices, but they hold a hell of a lot of state offices. And in our system, that still gives them a heck of a lot of things that they can do. So, well, listen, before we leave, I want to get to one thing that Fred specifically brought to the docket today. So on Monday, a group of 124 retired generals and admirals calling itself Flag Officers for America advanced the big lie that the 2020 presidential election was rigged in Joe Biden's favor and is warning the nation that it is in, quote, deep peril from a, quote, full-blown assault on our constitutional rights. The next day, both current and former military officers spoke out, called the letter a dangerous indication of the military being dragged into partisan warfare, and broadly speaking, just worried that so many of these individuals who wear stars on their shoulders would take such a position and certainly take it publicly. So, Fred, I know, first, obviously, you have deep experience and service with the military, but you've also been looking into this. What can you tell us and what does it tell us more broadly about the military right now? It's a terrible thing. I mean, the horror I've seen across so many of my peers and active duty folks. I mean, everybody has their list of generals who endorse them. Biden had several hundred. Trump had a couple hundred. But this is an unprecedented move where retired general officers or flag officers using their actual rank made a case for not just the big lie, but 
the usual, oh, socialism, Marxism, attacking the sitting president as not being competent, the lie that Biden is somehow diminished, isn't able to actually run the country. It's been horrifying. So it's interesting timing, though, because as soon as I saw the letter, I said it looked like the same letter that they did for Trump's endorsement back in September during the campaign. So we had built a database of those general officers and did some analysis on it. We had a great team, uh, Hunter and uh, Jack LaBelle, a couple of our interns did the analysis. And the average age of that letter was like 72 years old. They've been out of office forever. So our friend John Scott Railton, who'd been on LPTV just a couple of weeks ago, if you know, the researchers been working on the capital insurrection stuff, he and I collaborated overnight and I gave him the database we built and we compared the two databases to the list of names. And you guys, this is where it gets interesting. The average age of the signers of this letter are 80 years old. Average birth year was 1940. One guy is 98 years old. I think there's seven of them in their 90s. Not one of them has served, I think, even since 2000 in the current war on terror. I mean, this is just a group of all white males, 100% white males, which is interesting because even the Trump group had a couple of women and a number of Latino representatives. All of those guys from the Trump letter dropped off. And this letter was written by a bunch of no-name, insignificant white male dinosaurs from another era who have now really changed the dynamic. McInerney, Don Baldock, Poindexter, I mean, two Iran-Contra figures are in there. It's just it's horrifying. And by the way, this comes at the same time that if you guys follow the trend, I, obviously I live this, you know, the military is considered one of the highest regarded government institutions in America like by, by ridiculous numbers. That has actually been dropping for two and a half years. I didn't know that, really. Why is that? Well, I think the politicization of the military under the Trump administration. If you see things like Lafayette Square, you see the manipulations, you hear the stories, you know, that it's just been a march. This does not help. What's also interesting on the international scale is this letter came out almost the same day that an anonymous letter from French officers, allegedly military officers, was sent out decrying the Islamism in France. And that's a hell of a coincidence, don't you think, that military people are doing anonymous letters or letters publicly at the same time across multiple countries? It just smells funny. It smells like a fallen down drunk in a bar and its name is Bannon. You mean Steve Bannon, who called us his professional colleagues and friends? Oh, that was so nice. Steve, if you're listening, let me make a point. We're not friends. We're never going to be friends. We're not colleagues. We're never going to be colleagues. We are not a white stripe song. That is right. We are not going to be friends. Well, but I mean, Fred, before we leave this, I mean, you saw, was it last 4th of July, Michael Flynn, you know, stood in front of like a campfire and took the QAnon oath right? Where we go one, we go all. All right. So these guys are old. I'm sure if any of them heard that you'd call them insignificant, even with a star on their shoulder, they'd probably all be extremely indignant. But what is going on? I mean, we're an all-volunteer force, right? So you sign up. We don't have a draft. We haven't had a draft in decades. So is it merely a matter of that the military as small a percentage of the country as it is reflects the country writ large, or is there a broader problem going on? I think there's two. You nailed the first one. As as a young West Point cadet, we have to take you know military professional courses. And one of the first things they teach you is the United States military is a direct reflection of the society it represents. And so the fact is we are a reflection of the United States of America. The folks, especially in an all-volunteer force, it's skewed a little bit. They tend to be conservative, obviously. We come from the country. But in general, we are America. 
Now that is, as I used to tell people all the time, look, you give me your kid at 18 or you give me a 21, you've had them for 21 years or 18 years to build that young man or woman into who they are. My eight weeks of basic training or a year or four years of ROTC isn't going to fundamentally change who this person is. And so we are able to place them in uniform, give them professional ethic, have a career, serve their country with a focus on the constitution and their duty. What I'm seeing though is an erosion of those norms. I believe Flynn is a traitor. I believe Flynn is one of the most horrible leaders we've ever met. You will never in your life meet a person who served under Michael Flynn who says, oh yeah, I was really proud to serve with him. He treated his subordinates like crap. That's why he was fired by Obama because he, he, he created a hostile work environment at, at his organization. The guy is not a good guy and now he's obsessed with money. So you're seeing these edges. So I think these guys could go off and be in the fringe and no one wouldn't know it. But now our society today of this larger voice, this pedestal we've placed the military upon since 9-11, especially where they can do no wrong. Let's give them early boarding. You know, hey, where's your free blooming onion? What's the thing about putting somebody up high on a pedestal? It's a really long fall. And I think what you've done is we've created this image of these flawless individuals. And those of us who serve know many, many are not. And now we're all seeing it. And uh, I t it's a terrible time. I think the idea that these men, and it's just men, I can't even say, you know, people, these men chose to so highly politicize and promote a lie and coat themselves in the Constitution. I mean, you know, what's missing from that letter, Reed? Not a mention of January 6th. The first time since 1812 the U.S. Capitol has been breached, the first time we've had a domestic insurrection really since Civil War, and it's not even mentioned as a threat to our nation. It tells you where they're coming from, and it tells you really, really bad things about that group. Well, sure, because if you admitted it, then the rest of the lie starts to unravel. Unravels, exactly. Well, gentlemen, thanks again for joining me today. And before we get out of here, Rick, where can everybody find you online? I am found at the Rick Wilson on Twitter and Instagram. All right. And Stu, what about you? Uh, Stuart P. Stevens at Twitter. And Fred? Of course, always F.P. Wellman on Twitter. I live and breathe on there. You can find me on Twitter as well, at Reed Galen. First and foremost, I just want to thank everyone for listening, and we will see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking, with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.